Over the past 15 years, the number of degrees and certificates awarded by Texas Community Colleges has increased 177%. Be a part of the Texas success at TACC.org. Texas Alliance for Patient Access, Telemedicine Services Aid Emergency Care in Rural Texas. More at TAPA.info. Texas Talking Ball. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Ball. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas Gods are Texas Hello, this is Mark Tippetts, the Libertarian Party candidate for Governor of Texas. You probably wouldn't realize that there are other gubernatorial candidates other than the Republican or the Democrat until you listen to this show. Now enjoy this week's Tribcast. And now here's your host, Patrick Svitek. Thank you. This is Patrick Svitek here on Wednesday, May 30th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. So two two things fast. The first is I have my phone because Emily's not here. <laughs> I feel like Tom oh, Cruise in Risky here. Business or I was something. Supposed to you know, I'm to unsupervised. Away, so. The second thing is nothing I like more than when you're hosting the Tribcast because when we do the intros, I have to phonetically sp- spell out the pronunciation of your last name. <laughs> To everybody, which just kills me. So I thought he did a good job on that. Thank you. Yeah. Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. He doesn't care. The robot continues robot. Gotta stay focused. Robot got a robot. Got time on the clock. Uh, An education reporter, Elias Swabi. Uh, First, though, we're joined by Julie Johnson, the Democratic nominee for House District 115. This seat is currently held by State Representative Matt Rinaldi, a Republican from Irving, and Democrats view it as a a top pickup opportunity in November. Julie, thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, thank you again. And and so tell us a little bit about why you're running for this seat and, and what you're hearing from folks in the district at this point in the race. Well, I'm running because um, the people of House 115 are not being represented, and we need a change in our leadership uh, in Austin. Uh, We need people who are going to fight for a stronger public education system. Uh, Our property taxes are out of control. Our schools are still not funded. And we need to focus on health care access and um, infrastructure development. There's just a lot of issues that are facing Texas and my opponent is Mr. No. You know, he uh, single-handedly voted to kill 100 bills, practically, of the Mother's Day massacre. I think you, you all refer to it as that. He doesn't get anything passed. He's an obstructionist, and he doesn't accurately represent the values of the people in 115. But the reverse case to that could be this is a conservative district, or at least historically. I know Hillary Clinton won this district by almost eight points in the last election, but Mitt Romney won it by double digits. Ted Cruz won it over Paul Sadler in the Senate race by double digits. The Hillary Clinton outcome could be seen as an anomaly in that district. That's a conservative district. Maybe what the conservative voters of that district who've elected Mr. Rinaldi in the past want is somebody to do less and not more. Maybe maybe he's reflecting them and representing them after all. You know, I disagree with that. I think that the demographics of this district are changing exponentially. We have one of the most diverse uh, zip codes in the country in Irving, in our district. And we've had such an outpouring of people of all different genders, ages, race, um, ethnic origins saying we are not being heard, our values are not being represented, and we want to support this campaign. And I don't think Mr. Rinaldi is representing the views. Our district is 30 percent Hispanic. We have a significant immigrant population of all Korean, 
uh, South Asian. Uh, it's just very verse, diverse and wonderful and vibrant. And his actions in the legislature, especially on the last day of the session, uh, just horrified people and don't represent the things, the values of immigrants and the values of just so many things that people in this district hold dear. Yeah. Evan hit on this. You mentioned that Hillary Clinton won the district. I think also in 2016, the Democrat running against Rinaldi came uh, shockingly close to unseating yes. him. Two, you said a couple points, points right? Yeah. Uh, less than two, two points. It's like 1.9 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's, given all those numbers and since then, what have you heard or seen since then uh, in the district that makes you more hopeful? Or have you heard or seen things that, you know, restore the idea that this is going to be an uphill battle? Well, I think that this district is full of people that share a lot of common values, which is we want people in Austin who are fiscally responsible, you know, spend our money well, don't tax us more than we have to, be efficient with how we spend our dollars, but also everyone in Texas deserves a fair shot. We don't need to discriminate against anyone. Uh, we need to get the government out of our lives, out of our health care. Everyone needs access to health care and just give everyone an equal shot to succeed. We need to fund our education system, give all the children of Texas an equal shot at education and give them an opportunity to succeed. You know, one of the things that horrifies me and one of the things that actually motivated me to get become a candidate was um, after the presidential election, I was devastated. I was very upset. I was irritated at federal politics. And I decided to get more involved locally. And I asked myself, I said, you know, I want to partner with a school. I think DISD, surely we have some school corporate partnerships. And I said, find me a school that needs some help. And sure enough, DISD has a very aggressive partnership. So my law firm, we did that. And I've partnered with uh, David G. Burnett Elementary, a school of 1,000 students, most are at or below the poverty line, almost entirely Hispanic student group. And I got to be principal of a day. And I went over there and I toured their school. And one of the things that was most shocking to me when I toured their music program, and my parents were music teachers, music and, and arts education is something very important to me. I was horrified that they had plastic buckets. That was it. That was their instrument. They didn't have any instruments. They were playing with sticks on plastic buckets. And that was all they had. And I thought that is just not right in Dallas County. When we have $75 million football stadiums be, you know, being built, but we can't even fund and supply our schools. And that really motivated me to get involved and yep. be a champion for all kids in education. Did I hear you say you think government should get out of our health care? Uh, yeah, you heard me say that. You and Mr. Rinaldi may be in yeah. agreement about that. So you oppose <laughs> the Affordable Care Act. You do no. not believe that government should uh, should pay for no, people's health care or expand Medicaid. No, that's not it at all. I actually am, am very in favor of that. I think we should expand Medicaid. I don't think the government should tell us what procedures we can and cannot have. I don't think the government should interfere between the doctor and the patient relationship. But I do think that we should have... Um, uh, health care access and funding. I think it's crazy in Texas that we pay federal income tax dollars to support Medicaid funding for every other state. But yeah. we're, we're sitting out. I mean, I'm not getting a tax credit. None of us, none of us are getting a tax refund because we're not accepting Medicaid. You know, we're just not getting the benefit of it. And we are in a, a health care crisis with Medicaid funding. Uh, we have so many uninsured, so much um, people do not have access to basic health care. And it is a humongous problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. You've you mentioned Representative Rinaldi a few times. As, as Dr. No, you mentioned what happened on the House floor on the last day of the, the last regular session. How much of a, 
uh, referendum is this race on him versus other factors that you're other things that you think are, are motivating voters in the district? Well, I think it's a combination of things. You know, we have a lot of things for voters to vote for and to get behind. We have a lot of positive ideas that will affect change. But people do not like him. I mean, um, an example of this is what happened in the municipal elections um, just just a few weeks ago in Coppell, Texas. Uh, th there's a moderate slate of Republicans that are in office. And Rinaldi and Empower Texas fielded a hard right slate against the mayor and all the school boards. And um, we decided that's just not okay for Rinaldi and Empower Texas to take over Coppell. And so we got out, we worked hard, we engaged our Democratic voters, and the moderate Republicans won by 30 points. So Rinaldi really, he put his you know, correspondence out with a seal and everything out there, you know, endorsing the slate of candidates that lost by a lot. You think that's something that's going to resonate with November elections, Rinaldi and Empower Texans meddling in municipal elections back in I May? do. Yeah. I think it's a min it was a mini test of the culture of this district. And this area is the most Republican area of the district. And he, his influence was very minimal and obviously not impactful. And, uh, and I think in that process, he really alienated a lot of Republican voters that have reached out to us and say, we want to support your campaign. We do not like what he's doing. We don't like what he stands for. And we want to uh, join on, on board to help you get elected. So um, it's his his influence has, has been strong and the reaction to him has been substantial. He was a pretty energetic yes vote on the Sanctuary Cities bill a year ago in the legislature <clears throat> with some controversy around it. There was a big fight, big argument um, that almost came to blows. Would you have voted for or against that legislation? And do you think it's going to be an issue in this campaign? Oh, I would have voted against this before. Um, I, I don't think, think it's that reflected with the district wants. No, I think it's discriminatory. I, I, I don't think um, I think the law enforcement people we've had conversations with don't find that bill helpful. Um, but I would have voted against it. Well, are, there, are there any issues? Are there any issues on which you and the Democratic Party diverge? Are there any traditional Democratic Party positions where you would be able to stand up and say? Um, I am prepared to represent the district as opposed to represent the letter next to my name or where I might be more independent, uh, not bound by my party, but bound by what I believe. Well, I think, you know, those are that's a, a really broad question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I gave you a lot of room to answer it. <laughs> well, you know, I've I've been a Democrat for a very long time and I support, uh, you know, traditional Democratic values of equality for all people and social justice reform and, and all of those sorts of things. Having said that, I'm also a, a fiscal pragmatist. You know, I, I definitely think you we need to- You own a small business, right? I do, I own a small business. I've, I've had a, I employ people. I've run a small business for almost 23 years now. I understand what it means to uh, be a business owner in Texas and an employer and provide for your employees and your families. And so I think that there's a lot of good ideas. I think part of what's happened just in the discord of politics is people have gotten so partisan that they refuse to come together and are willing to work on good ideas. And I'm willing to work with any Republican or Democrat as long as the idea is good, and I'm willing to oppose any Republican or Democrat if the idea is stupid. Julie, one, we got run out of time here in this segment, but just one last quick question. Uh, the governor just announced this school safety plan. I'm sure you probably haven't seen all the details yet, but <laughs> generally speaking, what do you think needs to be done to prevent incidents like what happened in Santa Fe uh, two weeks ago? Oh, well, I definitely... Um, uh, definitely think we need to improve uh, gun safety measures. I think we need to do background checks at a minimum. I think we need to um, 
you know, really improve mental health and restrict who gets who gets guns. I think gun storage. There's just lots of issues. I recently signed off on a joint letter by a lot of um, candidates and elected officials to the governor about issues and proposals. Um, but I'm I'm all for that. I think we need to do something. You know, the Empower Texans uh, wing of the party, uh, in the persons of the members of the Freedom Caucus. Right. Um, of the Republican been, Party. Of the Republican <laughs> Party have been fulminating against one particular thing that's come up since Santa Fe, and that is the idea that parents would be required to store their guns in a certain way to keep them away from their children. This was a thing that came up in the course of the right. aftermath of Santa right. Fe. And one by one by one, a number of the members of the Freedom Caucus, which Mr. Rinaldi is a part of, said, I will not allow the government to tell me as a parent how I store my guns at home. Where do you come down on that? I think we should have safety measures of gun storage. Require, should they be required? Um, possibly. I mean, it's all in the devil of the, in the details, but, you know, I think gun locks, you know, we have guns in my house. I have gun locks on all of them. They're stored in a lot gun safe. You know, I think there's, there's certain things that you can do to be safe about guns, and I think every parent should be encouraged to do that, especially if they have young kids. Encouraged but not required. Well, I mean, you know, one of the I one think of the that ways was the thrust of Abbott's plan today as well the, the, the when word, it came to the gun word locks. voluntary. Mm -hmm. is yeah, a big he, light. he, he one made the, one pretty clear that it was voluntary. Yeah. yeah, one of the conversations about what you would do with that is: um, would should parents be liable if they haven't taken gun safety measures and the guns are misused? Yeah. <laughs> well, the whole liability—that's a whole other issue. The lawyer in me is going to defer on that one to the details of the law. Oh, I was aiming at the lawyer. You know, I mean, I think. You know, once you start doing legal liabilities for issues, there's a lot of parameters that have to be considered. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have a general rule in Texas that parents have immunity from law. Um, Texas, especially like in drowning cases, there's a lot of issues where uh, parent parental immunity come into play. So it will affect, if you start imposing parental liability for kids, it affects a whole broad range of issues yeah. that I think needs to be considered too. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on today, Julie. We will see you out on the campaign trail. Thank you so much for having okay. me. Great. And as we're just getting Aaliyah uh, swapped in here for Julie, uh, Evander Ross, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what Governor Abbott just announced uh, less than two hours ago as it relates to school safety? Yeah, he basically did a range of things that we had kind of anticipated from the reporting, from your reporting and from others reporting on the um, three roundtables that he had last week after the shooting and from some of the things that he said and tweeted since then. Uh, it was basically everything on the pallet short of gun control. There was a lot about mental health. There was a lot about securing schools, about hardening school buildings Mar and facilities, and infrastructure. marshals, uh, putting more security people in there, uh, more training for uh, and anticipation of arming teachers. Uh, he had identified some funds that the state might have itself and that it might be able to get from you might have seen more about this, Aaliyah. But it's a million-dollar federal grant, I believe. The state might have seen, yeah, yeah, some from the Department of Education. So it's basically, you know, a combination of, oh, and then the main thing, I think the main emphasis was um, mental health care and mental health identification of people who need that kind of care, try to pick these kids out before they, um, before their troubles become big troubles like these. And um, he also said that a lot of what he was proposing needed Legislation. He didn't say right. he was going to call a special session. He said a special session isn't a place to, you know, 
uh, come up with ideas as a place to no, act but he specifically right. called out an interim charge, though. He said, right. I think there should be an interim charge. Right, right. And I want to get to the special session idea, but Aaliyah, you covered one of these roundtables last week. Based on your experience watching that unfold, were you surprised by anything that you heard from the governor today? No, I think a lot of uh, the recommendations that are on the list, um, on the governor's list, were ones that came up. I went to the last roundtable, and that one was a lot of the uh, family members of uh, people who were shot in Santa Fe and in Sutherland Springs and um, in another shooting in, I think, Alpine. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a lot of differences of opinion within the room on exactly what would be the best measures, but arming teachers came up a lot. Um, more mental health uh, from not just the parents, but the survivors too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. From student, there was one senior who had watched one of her classmates get shot the week before she was, you know, standing in front of the governor, um, and she said that having teachers who were armed and not knowing exactly who was armed would make her feel safer in the classroom. Having more law enforcement, like just around her school, would make her feel safer. Mm -hmm. So it it seems like pulled exactly from from what people were saying at these roundtables, actually. Right. Is it safe to say that people who were hoping that stricter gun regulations would come out of this were disappointed today? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of... Or, or <laughs> were their expectations relative and did Abbott exceed them in any way? <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of it are, you know, promote knowledge about gun safety. <laughs> and right. there's there's a couple of small mandates um, just looking through the table of contents there, but it doesn't seem like anything. There were some voluntary right things in there and there yeah. were some, you know, people ought to be more careful with their guns and some things like that. But he was... Careful, I think, to say, I mean, you know, two weeks before the shooting, he was speaking to the NRA and he's been a pretty, right. um, you know, he's been a, a strong Second Amendment voice um, before this and he didn't do anything to violate that. Um, this was not a day that the gun control advocates in Texas, um, moms against or the gun sense people are going to look back on and say this was a turning point or a watershed. You know, these events, one after another after another, have kind of a numbing quality to them because we've gotten so desensitized to the idea that there are going to be school shootings. But if you think about when I grew up, Ross, when you grew up, in our generation, maybe more so than in Aaliyah's and in Patrick's, one of, any one of these events would be would have been unthinkable or would have been um, news for days and weeks and months. And now it's just sort of like, you know, slough it off. Well, and that was a different, that was also a different environment for the politics of, of guns. It would have probably right. led to some quick restraints and some, right. and some very so, quick so restraints. So it would have been a more, yeah. so a less polarized, more normal, at least in yeah. this issue, more normal right. environment. And so a, a desensitized uh, state of things produces typically a not entirely surprising response. You know, the, 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 the moment is not that surprising, as horrible as it may be. And the response is not that surprising. Everyone is basically playing to type. Now, Ross has made the observation in the Tribune as recently as this morning that what Abbott is doing is taking action. And he is taking action. What he's not doing is nothing. But the action he's taking right. is not inconsistent, as Ross said, with his politics or with the politics of his party right. or with the politics of Second Amendment supporters. And so it's not really going to change at least outwardly, the conversation politically around this issue. Yeah, you mentioned the politics of, of his response. What have been the stakes for him? And I mean, has there been any peril for him, both on, you know, just kind of substantively how he's responded and now this question of whether uh, to call a special session or not? You know, the people who elected him, you know, basically are supportive of the Second Amendment and not of further restrictions on gun sales. But the people of Texas, I mean, you know, in the last in a February 2016 poll uh, by the University of Texas and the Texas Tribune, 78% of Texans 
said they would require background checks for sales. And uh, 37 and 22 is 59% said that open carry makes them feel um, less safe. So, you know, the the politics of the party and the politics of the state are a little bit different here. And he's trying to, you know, um, cover both sides of this. Um, that's, that's kind of the politics. The other thing, there's a political risk you know, hypothetically anyway, that he's running against someone with law enforcement experience and military experience and who's in a position, um, at least in terms of her resume, to talk about gun safety and school safety in a way that other candidates might not be, you know, as credible. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice that he chose Dallas to be the uh, first place where he rolled out this plan, the backyard of his Democratic challenger. Right. He was introduced and praised by the Dallas ISD superintendent, Mike Linoza. Right. I think the optics here were, were a little favorable to him as well, far he's as also got a, <laughs> re He's also got a commissioner of the Texas Education uh, Absolutely. Agency. Who's the former DISD former, state. Right. So right. They what had an end. Yeah. Of course, remember, though, that his Democratic opponent in the last race famously filled out— Leaving her regrets after the fact aside, famously filled out an Associated Press questionnaire in which she indicated support for for a carry of handguns. Did right. she not? I mean, this right. was a huge controversy. In fact, her running mate, as it were, the candidate for lieutenant governor of the Democrats, Letitia Vanderpeer, opposed what she supported. Now, Wendy Davis came back after the fact and said, well, I actually regret that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. But I mean... I'm, I mean, I'm kind of di diverging from Ross a little bit, and that I'm not sure that Lupe Valdez's badge or uniform as sheriff of Dallas County necessarily inoculates her from the criticism by Abbott that he'll make toward any Democratic candidate right. that basically you're weak on the Second Amendment and I'm not. I think she has the potential for more authority on the issue than a lawyer. Has uh, the, she articulated a, a position on well, this? Well, uh, no, so, so that's why I said hypothetically. This yeah. is not a great candidate, and <laughs> she hasn't jumped at this and— um, you know, pushed him into a corner on this. If, you know, if, if Mike Collier, who's been pretty loud about this, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, had um, the opportunity to speak about this that a gubernatorial candidate does, you know, you would have had a different argument. But I think she has, a, she has the ability to make an argument because of her position that she's not necessarily making and that, you know, Greg Abbott with this, you know, uh, cuts himself a little bit of yeah. daylight. One last question on this topic. We kind of skimmed over it earlier. What exactly did Abbott say today about calling a special session, Aaliyah? What, what did you hear from him? I mean, I think what he was saying was that if there was consensus on a specific uh, law or a specific measure, that he would be open to calling a special session. Right. And that's even maybe an overstatement of yeah. what he, he said. He seemed pretty cool session. to the idea overall. Yeah. I mean, he noted that uh, by the time you could pass and implement laws at a special session, the, ne the next school year will probably have already Unless started. Unless you have a supermajority in both houses to yeah, speed things sure. up, which would be hard. They've got a practical yeah. problem here is that, you know, to get a law to take immediate effect, you need a supermajority. And, you know, getting a majority on any kind of gun law... Um, there's some other things here, well, mental th health and some other this. things. But well, but to get a to get a simple majority would be hard enough. To get a super majority yeah. that would be required to put something in effect before the kids come back, almost impossible. The left is unlikely to support Abbott's plans because they would be too weak in the minds of the left. Right. But you have the Freedom Caucus, as we talked about with our previous guest on the right, fulminating about how there's too much encroachment on Second Amendment rights 
in some of what's been discussed. Right. I think you'd have a hard time with both the left and the right. Well, and I think you've got a lot of, you know, they hate being called moderate Republicans, but you've got a lot of moderate Republicans who are in this I position. Want, I'm going to refer oh. to them from now on as Embry, <laughs> Embry Republicans. That's going to be the phrase we're going to use on the podcast. Now. They're, 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 you know, this is why I was pointing at that 78 percent of, of Texans who would like to see background checks, you know, and things like that. Right. Some of those moderate Republicans in a perfect, you know, or in a in a blind vote would probably vote for those kinds of restrictions. But out in the open with the Freedom Caucus over there yelling and, and with the active part of the Republican Party taking a hard line Second Amendment position, I think, you know, those people would rather not vote on this. this, this they don't want to come back to in a old, special session and, and take a hard vote like that. This gets back to the old idea, you know, not that old. You know, the Democrats now say Texas is not a red state, it's a non-voting state. Yeah, but the practical effect of the second is the first. That polling data notwithstanding, the right. people who vote right. are with the governor. Which is a classic case right? of if you don't vote, you don't matter. Yeah. Right. Uh, Leah, just before we move on to the next topic, you had a story earlier this week that somewhat relates to this school safety discussion. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, I think it more directly relates now that I've had a chance okay. to read some <laughs> I'm glad I gave you a heads up that we were going to mention yeah. this. <laughs> um, so I had a story about uh, restorative practices, um, which is uh, a series of practices that's intended to um, you know, increase discussion and co uh, community building within uh, a school. It's, it's, um, you know, it can be used in other situations as well. Um, and so in doing so, it could be used to prevent violence and to, um, you know, decrease suspensions, which is what a lot of schools adopt it for, because, you know, when, when your suspensions are high, when students are fighting in the hallways, um, you need something that's like an overarching plan to actually use this. Um, How's it, back up a sec, how's it work? Uh, so in the schools where I, I visited one school in Spring ISD, um, and they just had uh, a couple of um, time blocks in twice a week for 35 minutes where um, a teacher led students in a circle. They would have different topics each time. Um, and it just, you know, forces them to be vulnerable depending on the topic. You know, they had a topic about Harvey after Harvey happened. And so it kind of forces everyone to sort of check in after the storm of how are you feeling? What happened to you? So people know then when you have your next class, like, okay, this kid like has 10 family members living with them. So like, that's why they're acting out in class. Right. So that the, the teacher is less likely in that case to immediately send them to the principal's office. Um, and would, you know, be more willing to like give them time to cool off or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, actually I saw restorative practices was in part of um, Abbott's plan for kids who um, have been... Was that one that he mentioned at the press or was, did you have to dig into the... the that was toward the bottom okay. of the report. Yeah, it's one that I don't remember if he said it in, uh, in today's hearing, but um, he, for students who have been expelled and who are in alternative education programs, um, one of the recommendations was um, using restorative practices to sort of, you know, get them to a place where they're um, they're dealing with their mental health issues and and preventing violence for them, so that they're not just stuck in these programs, uh -huh. still with the same issues that they had when they were in traditional schools. Got it. It was a great story, I thought, and I know yeah, the response story. on social media to it was, <laughs> "I didn't know about this." Yeah. And in some, in fact, some parents talked about the fact that they only knew about it; their own kids were part of these programs, but learned about it actually through your story. Right. 
just fantastic when that well, happened. Did you tell your classmates that 10 relatives were living in our house? <laughs> yeah. <All> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, thank you for joining us, Lee, to talk about it. And uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, MyPlates. MyPlates, save up to $100 off an official Texas license plate from MyPlates.com. Choose from over 100 different license plate designs at MyPlates.com slash Texas Tribune. And a reminder as well, before we move on to our next topic, if you're enjoying this TribCast, we'd love it if you left a review on iTunes. It helps us reach more listeners like you. For our final just several minutes here, um, we had Julie Johnson on, obviously a top Democratic recruit uh, in the state house races. Um, as we kind of finally get into the general election phase, what other um, state house seats are Democrats looking at and which ones are, are truly in play? Ross, I know you, you, know, I know you follow this closely. Dallas is like the epicenter of this stuff. There's a bunch of races up there that, you know, are interesting in and of themselves, each one, but because they're piled up. Um, could get both parties, you know, depending on how the arguments go, could get both parties kind of interested. There's a DA's race in Dallas County. There's a congressional race, the Pete Sessions race. There are a number of districts that have been contested by both parties in the last two or three or four cycles. There's the Cindy Burkett open seat, the Matt Rinaldi seat. The Rodney Anderson. Julie's running Grand at Prairie. Rodney Anderson. Um, Don Huffine's seat in the Senate is kind of um, considered by the Democrats to be in play. I'm not sure the Republicans agree with them, but because all of because the same— Because it was one of the districts that was won by be, Clinton. Because like, a lot of these voters are voting in several of these races. The Victoria Neave seat is one held by a Democrat that the Republicans are trying to get back. The Jason V. Alba seat, on and on and on. So, right. you know, to the extent that there are any pickups in the Texas House for the Democrats, they could all come from Dallas County. Right. Um, there's some others around the state, but, you know, people are looking at a couple of things. One of them is races where Republicans are incumbent or the Republican Party is incumbent and Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump. The caution on a bunch of those districts in the Pete Sessions congressional seat, in the John Culberson uh, congressional seat in Houston, is that while Hillary Clinton was beating Donald Trump, all the other Republicans were winning. So, you know, I think that race is more of an anomaly than the Democrats want to believe. I go back to the position I took at the time, which was that was Trump, not trend. Right. Why did Trump only win Texas by single digits, the closest presidential I mean, that's the key question right from across years? the map this cycle is whether those results are going to hold, whether they represent a permanent shift in the landscape. Evan, I know there's guest some host. breaking... Break the damn news, <laughs> guest host. Go ahead. So there was a, a Quinnipiac poll that just came out um, as we were talking, and it found that Ted Cruz leads Beto O'Rourke 50 to 39 percent in the Senate race. That's 11 points. And, and it so was a three-point race the last time. So they called it so too close on, to call. Based on this poll, yeah. uh, Cruz is now opening up a lead. He's more than tripled his lead against O'Rourke. And the poll also found that in the in the governor's race, the Republican incumbent Greg Abbott <laughs> leads his Democratic challenger Lupe Valdez fifty three percent to thirty four percent. So pretty so nineteen points, pretty wide lead there. That's, well, 19, that's, that's about, that's about his margin over the, Wendy Davis. Right, exactly. Nineteen points is consistent. Look, here's the thing: the Democrats who loved that last poll and were out, kind of, you know. Old people fainting, young girls screaming right. about O'Rourke the last time when this was three. When it was three points, <laughs> yeah. you own that poll, you own this poll. Right. Right? Republicans who hated that poll and said Quinnipiac is shit, you own this poll, you own that poll. Right. Both sides, they switch. They switch places. I think the voters haven't made up their minds. I mean, this is the problem with early polls is that people, a lot of people finalize their choices in September, October, and even early November, they lock in. They say, okay, you know, and not everybody is polarized. A lot of people right. are on the fence, and they're going to learn about these candidates. The interesting thing about the Cruz 
O'Rourke race is that the candidates have, at least as of the last reports, about equal resources, and voters are going to kind of hear from each of them on their own. The problem for, Win for uh, not for Wendy Davis, the problem for uh, Lupe Valdez in the governor's race is that Greg Abbott has more money with which to describe her than she has herself, and he's not going to describe her in a favorable way. And by the time you get to October and decision time, you know, she could be underwater. Yeah. This poll found that a lot, a majority of voters, registered voters in Texas still don't know who Beto O'Rourke is, 50, exact majority, 50%. Right. So that continues to be a, you know, a challenge. Which is an opportunity for, for uh, Cruz. That, you know, Cruz gets to describe him before he describes himself. Right. And uh, this is everyone Robert in Texas Francis has an, has an opinion on, on Ted exactly Cruz. Right, so yeah. there's not like, it's not like he has any ground to make up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, one last question on these, these general election races. Um, does Santa Fe change them at all? Um, does the governor's response change them at all? Obviously, Santa Fe happened four days before the runoffs. There was a completely limited impact on the runoffs. One of the gubernatorial candidates who lost, Andrew White, tried to emphasize it a little bit. But I mean, going to the general election, uh, Santa Fe, gun, school safety, does that factor into this stuff at all? Only in races where one candidate or the other has successfully described a difference between the candidates. So if you and I are running against each other and we have a big difference on that and voters have to choose between our positions on that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that this is going to be the big issue in any particular race, you know, unless right. unless there's some uh, outsized reaction to what the governor has proposed or, you know, something else from the legislature or other candidates this year. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been a big issue in previous Texas races. Right. Leah, you cover education. Do you hear from your sources at all about the political impact of this I mean, I as think they look toward November? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, people are generally, when it comes to school safety, um, people are hesitant to politicize it, at least among, among educators at first. You know, I think everyone's um, wanting there to be something happening <laughs> to make school safer in September. And, um, you know, I think at least now it's, it's less about the politics of it and more about what are we going to do this summer. Right. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, we hope you'll try our new audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Search for Texas Tribune Brief on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to our sponsors this week, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, the Texas Alliance for Patient Access, and MyPlates. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Aaliyah, and our producers, Bobby, Michael, and Todd, this is Patrick Svitek. Thanks for listening. But I've been in Texas more than half my life now. You better, oh, you better, you better believe I'm going to claim. I will claim Texanness. <laughs>